rising visibility of transgender people creates opportunities and repercussions. Filmmaker Chase Joint gives a historic perspective on the struggle in his documentary, Framing Agnes. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. My guest, Chase Joint, has worked on multiple projects on transgender topics. His previous film was No Ordinary Man, about Billy Tipton, who was born with a woman's body, but had a successful career as a male jazz musician living a life of concealment. Chase's latest documentary is Framing Agnes. It premiered at last year's Sundance Film Festival in the next section, where it won the Audience Award. The film is constructed around a rare archive of interviews with trans and gender nonconforming people in the 1950s. Chase employs inventive film techniques by casting contemporary trans actors to portray historical figures. Chase became fascinated by the figure of Agnes, who is documented in academic case studies. The record shows that in the late 1950s, Agnes was a teenager who was born with male genitals but identified as a woman. After reading about Christine Jorgensen receiving gender reassignment surgery in Europe, Agnes wanted that for herself. She visited specialists at UCLA to seek treatment. She told them she had a biological condition that today we'd call intersex. That's what the doctors needed to hear in order to give Agnes the surgery she wanted. Afterwards, she admitted that her story contained half-truths. She had exaggerated her biological details in order to navigate UCLA's system. In the film, the actor Zachary Drucker plays Agnes based on real interview transcripts. But do you ever feel embarrassed by your situation? I've been in many rooms with many doctors. I'm not embarrassed. But they're going to remove incredibly important parts of your body. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you just put it in a little box so I can pet it and keep it for the rest of my life? Aren't you worried about complications? This is the utmost complication. These interviews were originally conducted in private. In the film, Chase reimagines them with a different framework. He stages them like a television talk show, putting himself in the interviewer's chair. The scenes taking place in the 1950s are shot in black and white. Other present-day interviews are shot in color with contemporary trans actors. Here is Zachary Drucker explaining why the format of the television talk show has so much potency for trans people of a certain age. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I grew up in the golden age of talk shows. I mean, they were just on continuously throughout the day, so if you were sick and, you know, stayed home from school, it was very likely that you could just watch a string of talk shows. You know, there were some that were clearly more progressive, you know, Joan Rivers. Today's show is all about sexually confusing stories. And then there was, you know, more exploitative ones where, you know, people's gender identities were being sensationalized and they were being electing to out themselves on national television for whatever kind of financial incentives. It was helpful to have some view into the possibility that trans people existed yeah. on television, but by and large, the ostracization that those subjects faced in putting themselves out there, and I can't help but think that they were doing it for us. 
So the film has multiple layers as it explores how trans history has been framed. The interviews at the center of the film come from the archives of sociologist Harold Garfinkel. Chase went looking for Agnes in Garfinkel's papers and wound up finding interviews with other trans figures as well. In the film, Chase casts himself as Garfinkel, only stylized like an archetypal TV interviewer. When Chase is performing Garfinkel's actual questions, we get a sense of how little the sociologist understood at the time. Here's an interview Garfinkel held with a trans woman named Barbara. Some other people I've spoken to talk about pretense. Pretense. Being a man, but having to pass as a woman. There's no pretense. If it is in you to be female and women's apparel help you make a success of it, then so be it. Yes, well, that's what everyone says, but some do admit that it is hard to shake off the pretense. I don't feel that way. When I was a female impersonator, I was acting, but it's not like when I left, I took off my face and became a different person. Chase puts a strong emphasis on collaboration in his work. For his research, he was joined by Kristen Schilt, a sociologist from the University of Chicago. I started by asking Chase how he and Kristen uncovered the history of Agnes. To be perfectly frank, we are geeks who like to spend time with each other and gained access to the private archival holdings of Harold Garfinkel. He had died in 2011 and there was someone who was in charge of his estate. And through a series of very fortunate events, we ended up in a building that contained all of his belongings, everything from all of his research papers to stationery from the 1950s to spare auto parts and luggage. I mean, the, the makings of a life, the materials of a life, and returned to the archive over many years, helping to organize its contents. And all the while we were looking for Agnes, um, but along the way we found so many other parts of trans history and in the very last moment found the transcripts, not only of Agnes, but of a number of her contemporaries. And so we're able to think in much more complex ways about what was happening in this moment in the mid-century where doctors were identifying and creating and putting trans and gender nonconforming people into diagnostic categories. So how had the story of Agnes come to light before you did all your research? You, you describe her as iconic. It was not a figure I was aware of the way I'm aware of like Christine Jorgensen. Um, but so can you talk about what was known about Agnes in, in, in the community? Yeah, so Agnes appears in one chapter of Harold Garfinkel's very obscure sociological text called Studies in Ethnomethodology, the details of which I will not get into for the purpose of our conversation. And what happened was various disciplines attached to Agnes's stories for different reasons. So we have a feminist studies reading of Agnes's case. We have a queer studies reading of Agnes's case. And then all of a sudden trans people get a hold of Agnes's case and recognize something in her that is a strategy of survival that endures to this day. And so her status as a kind of iconic figure is one because the details of her case have remained relevant to so many different kinds of reinterpretation. Let me ask you about the UCLA Gender Clinic, uh, which was operating in the 1950s where, where Agnes uh, came. Can you talk more about uh, what its intentions were? We, in the film, we see the clinic mainly represented by Harold Garfinkel, who you uh, 
portray from uh, from his transcripts, um, and he comes across as naive, patronizing, not uh, you know, not necessarily understanding or in sympathy with the um, with the clients that he's uh, seeing. So, what was the what, what were the motives of the gender clinic as you understand them? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And there's a small slippage insofar as we refer to this time and place as the gender clinic, but it wasn't referring to itself in that way at that time. But it's something that emerged over time to be identified as such. And, you know, I think the important thing to remember about Harold Garfinkel is that he was a young sociologist who was a part of a research group led by much more senior scholars who were researching a variety of different kinds of social, political, and identificatory difference. And so Garfinkel wasn't interested necessarily in transness or gender nonconformity. He was interested in asking questions of people and things and processes that he did not understand. And I think that that's revealed in the kinds of questions that he asks. You know, one of the things that I love considering about sociology as a as a discipline or as a legacy is, is that he's very interested in the the how questions. How are you living your life? How do you accomplish the things that you're accomplishing? Whereas his colleagues in psychology are really interested in the why questions. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? What does it mean about you? And so the how, from my perspective, gives a really different insight into the makings of queer and trans life in the 1950s because people are answering very directly about the workings of their everyday experiences from love and romance to work to navigating social space. And so it's quite peculiar that we gain access to this small subset of trans and gender nonconforming people because there isn't um, necessarily an understood outcome for their participation in these conversations with Garfinkel at the time. He was a gatekeeper, but a gatekeeper to what people were still trying to, to understand and explore. From what you're describing, it uh, it sounds like the work he was doing as a sociologist was much broader than um, uh, than just look than 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 what we're seeing in in the film. So perhaps what we're seeing in the film is actually a small part of his larger work. Completely, and I can tell you that having been on the circuit with the film for the better part of a year, I would say at least once a month there is a sociologist in his. 80s at least, who is in the crowd, who is coming to see the film on account of his disciplinary history with Garfinkel, with sociology, with ethnomethodology, and they always want to come up and tell me precisely that. They want to tell me that Agnes was not the orienting, you know, object of his um, research agenda. But I find that to be fascinating as well. Right, that he was able to spend, that he is a, a very important part of this history. And given that Harold Garfinkel was a kind of naive, patronizing figure, uh, at least at this period is expressed in these transcripts, how did you find your way into portraying him? For me, this is the important turn toward thinking about the legacy and history of documentary films related to trans subjects. I grew up watching any moving image version of transness that I could find. And I think the history of trans representation in documentary is the history of 
cis, non-trans identified makers looking in on communities about which they know very little. And those resonances were very clear to me when thinking about who Harold Garfinkel was to the people he was engaging and questioning. And so this moment of seeing and reading Garfinkel on the page, understanding the questions he was asking from this outsider's perspective, immediately sparked for me the connections to the world of talk shows and other forms of mainstream industrial media where outsiders are asking trans people very the very same questions. What does it mean that Harold Garfinkel and Jerry Springer share a set of curiosities about trans life? And how are we as documentary filmmakers also implicated in that kind of violent excavation? I'd love to hear you elaborate more on the format of the talk show and, and what, you know, talk shows meant to you, how that resonates with you personally? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things for trans people of my era, so those of us came up watching a kind of daytime television, the talk show does a kind of double duty where it is at once a circus-like environment where trans people are forced into performing versions of themselves that perhaps feel inauthentic and or manipulated while also offering many folks the first chance to see transness on screen and to recognize that there are other people in the world who are making choices that make sense to us in some way, however imperfect. And so I'm not interested in throwing out bad media objects. I'm not interested in making sure we never see trans people on talk shows ever again. I'm much more interested in trying to spend time in the complexity of the fact that media like that do a kind of double duty and are doing both harm and are offering opportunity concurrently. So you began this going in search of Agnes, who you were aware of through academic uh, uh, papers. Um, and you and Kristen get into uh, Harold Garfinkel's archives and then make this discovery of these other transcripts. Can you talk about what that was like? Yeah, it was an extraordinarily overwhelming moment that was immediately joyous. And that joy was complete, was very quickly replaced with a feeling of dread, uh, a kind of what do we do with this information? Because I think that there's a kind of ethical quandary or ongoing ethical conundrum in archival work where you recognize what an opportunity to find something. And also, am I the person to be finding this? Should I have this information? What does it mean to be encountering people's lives in this way? Uh, if I was someone coming in to have a conversation with a researcher about my life looking for resources, what does it mean for someone to come along however many years later, not only find my words, but then make a choice to make a documentary that's going to circulate on an international festival circuit market? Like this is a, a complex set of responsibilities to consider. But the chance to put Agnes in conversation with her contemporaries felt thrilling. Because to your earlier conversation and points about what Garfinkel was doing at UCLA at this particular time, one of the things that he was doing was trying to develop a, and think about the theory of passing. So he's thinking not only about gender passing, but about racial passing and vocational passing. And Agnes emerges as this exemplary subject because she comes in claiming to have no access to anyone like her that no one in the world understands. She's completely isolated. And therefore, for Garfinkel, she emerges as this perfect case study to think about passing. But of course, 
for those of us closer to the kinds of histories that she is explaining and embodying, it's a rare occasion for a trans person to know absolutely no one like them. And there was a chance for us to think out loud together about the intersections of race and class that inform who we get to see in these kinds of histories and who we get to find. And also a chance to collaborate with some of the most talented and inspiring people who are making work about trans life in the contemporary moment. So in the film, I think you uh, have six figures um, who were in, uh, di who were interviewed by by Garfinkel. Is that the total of surviving records, or were there others beyond that? There were eight files that we found, six of whom appear in the film, and the other two. There was so little information that it felt unethical to attempt to bring them into the fold. And I think they were folks who came through once and realized that it wasn't a place for the conversations that they wanted to have. And so it didn't make sense for us to consider. Uh, so uh, Agnes, uh, which I take it is a pseudonym, um, Indeed. Uh, it, it, is anything else known about uh, her life outside of this archive? No, one of the most glorious things about Agnes is that when she leaves and disappears, she disappears precisely as she desired. Uh, she did return to the clinic a number of times, as we explore in the film, to, to tell doctors of the, some of the choices that she made, but then ultimately she does escape the record. I want to ask you about the figure Georgia, who in the film is played by Angelica Ross, that fans of Pose will, will know from that show. Tell me more about the experience of, uh, of, of finding that transcript. Of course, Georgia is the only um, self-identified person of color that we found in the small sample of Garfinkel's filing cabinet. And you're right, it, the presence of Georgia allows us access to the specifics of her experience as a Black trans woman in LA in the 1950s. But one of the things that we wanted to be very careful not to do is to overburden Georgia in the film and or Angelica by virtue of having Angelica walk toward Georgia's history withholding all of the significance of race and racialization and the ways in which racism was functioning in Garfinkel's research and at UCLA as a whole. And so this is where the deeply enduring collaborative relationship with our actors really takes a kind of center stage, which is to say, it's all well and good that Kristen and I have access to these transcripts of Georgia, of Agnes, of others, but what does it mean to attempt to animate these questions in the contemporary moment? And what is at stake when we try to make these creative moves and who is most impacted by those choices? And so a collaboration with Angelica, which began in the short film version of Framing Agnes and endured through the feature, was a chance for Angelica to also make choices around what parts of Georgia arrive on screen and what parts of Georgia are offered up in this kind of interpretive experiment. How do these transcripts fit into a wider history that's known of, of trans people of that era? You know, there's a number of different clinics that are functioning across the U.S. at the time. There's research in clinics in Europe as well, as we briefly explore with the 
the significance and arrival of Christine Jorgensen into a kind of media moment. I think what we're seeing is the emergence of transness as a medicalized phenomenon, one that researchers and mm, doctors of a variety of different kinds are attempting to reckon with and make decisions about. But one of the things that I find most energizing about this time period as well is it's concurrent to these contexts of media. There is a rich and enduring trans activism that is running alongside where trans people are showing up for each other in spaces outside of clinics and medical establishments to, to build worlds and make communities. You know, one line that doesn't make it into the film, but I'd love an opportunity to share is, you know, at some point in conversation with Garfinkel, Denny, one of our transmasculine subjects, looks at him and says, you know, I am in LA, in the Hollywood Hills, at parties with 200 lesbians at a time. And in the, even on the page, even though you're not in the room with them, you can see the sort of bug eyes of Garfinkel just not even being able to wrap his head around the fact that there is a vibrant and robust queer and trans circuit of life in LA that he knows nothing about. And, and so I'm always really um, inspired by the things that we don't know and the ways that these medical transcripts are giving us just the smallest slice into a very hyper-controlled and curated version of trans life because, of course, every single person who's talking to Garfinkel understands that they're being surveilled, understands that they're being recorded, and understands that whatever they say is going to be used to either help them to get past the gatekeeping and to find the services that they need and or to render them outside the logic and capture of those kinds of research priorities. I want to ask you more about what you understand the motives of the of the people having these conversations. Agnes's motives, I think, are most clear to me um, in that she was uh, uh, seeking um, seeking treatment. Uh, is is that the same of uh, Georgia and Denny and 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 others? You know, it's left to our interpretation in some very important ways. I think there are people who arrive seeking out a kind of medical treatment. There are people like Georgia who are seeking other kinds of resources, advice as to how to avoid vice cop surveillance and to find ways to feel safer on the streets. In the case of our transmasculine subjects, you notice a willingness to participate in conversation without a particular goal. So someone like Denny, for example, uh, is happy to be in conversation with Garfinkel for reasons that are unclear to me. I'm not sure what Denny desires, um, if anything, other than an opportunity to converse and also to network. And it's, it's, warming to me to think about the relationship between Denny and Henry as two transmasculine people who also know each other outside the contexts of the clinic. But then you think about Henry and the difference between Henry and Denny and how it is clear that Henry is seeking a kind of assistance for mental health resources, perhaps, for medical intervention. And I think the, the relationship between those two pursuits is pretty clear when you, when you listen to him speak. Tell me about the figure of Jimmy from the archives. So Jimmy emerges in the clinic as a teenager who comes with his mom, which is another extraordinary uh, moment to consider, a very supportive mother who recognizes UCLA as a place where they could potentially find help. And one of the things that we get to consider when we, when we hear Jimmy's words is the extraordinary self-assuredness that he brings. He understands himself 
He is not confused. He does not find it to be particularly com complicated. And it is in fact, you know, his frustration with the adult's inability to join him there that, that reads most clearly. This portrait that we have of Garfinkel in the 1950s, when, as you say, he was a young sociologist and, you know, seems to be clueless in many ways uh, about the, the lives of the people that he's talking to. In his archives, did you gain any understanding of his uh, perceptions evolved over the years? It's a great question. I, you know, I, I completely understand and actually I take responsibility for the ways in which people like yourself, you know, summarize Garfinkel as being so clueless. And in part that has to do with my performance uh, of him in the film. You know, I think that Garfinkel was a, a genuinely curious uh, researcher and human who was motivated by a whole number of different questions um, that far exceed the kinds of questions that he is asking of the trans subjects in this study. Um, he goes on to do a number of different things in his life that have nothing to do with this case. And I don't think that the archival work that we did really revealed those if, if my collaborator, Kristen Schilt was on this call. She would turn hard towards sociology in service of your answer. Um, but I am less interested in where he went and how he recovered and or he didn't, and more interested in what was left. Like what is the trace of this kind of experiment that does exist as a little bit of a detour outside of his normal research practice. A question that arises in this film uh, through Agnes's story and many stories is what does it mean to be forced to lie in order to navigate a world that's designed to entrap you and uh, and hold you back? Can you talk about, you know, what draws you to, to that theme? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a really important essay in sort of the history of trans studies written by a scholar named Dean Spade in the 2000s that uses Agnes as an introductory anecdote. And one of the things that he is, is writing about in that article is the ways in which trans people are still utilizing the very strange, same strategies today to navigate medical systems. And it's not lost on me that we are all forced to articulate very specific versions of ourselves in order to remain safe, in order to remain legible, if that is a kind of desire to our friends, to our family, to these broader institutions. And, you know, as a documentary cinema lover and scholar and maker, I'm also fascinated by the ways in which documentary as a genre pressurizes us to continue performing particular versions of ourselves as directors, as subjects, as researchers. And so trying to think about this story far beyond the specificity of Garfinkel and UCLA and the 1950s. How can we actually be thinking about the, the form of documentary itself and the pressure that documentary puts on certain kinds of subjects to tell certain kinds of truths and to really shine a light on the fact that everybody is, is performing and manipulating themselves in service of, of the form and the genre. Well, uh, Chen Richards, the uh, performer who who plays one of the characters uh, in the film, uh, you know, raises the question: you know, isn't everyone performing or telling lies about themselves? And uh, and I think you know, most of us can see that in our in our own stories, uh, uh, no matter who we are, that we edit versions of ourselves depending on what room we're walking into and um, and who we're talking to. Uh, I, I mean, that moment really resonated strongly for me. 
Yeah, and it always makes me think of, you know, who has the most at stake and or who is most punished for those kinds of strategies and who is afforded the opportunity to, to, to get away with it. And I think that one of the things that Jen is also reminding us is that there is, there's great power and protection in also never revealing your strategies, right? And so there's something kind of remarkable to me about Agnes's return to say, I just want you to know that this is what I did and this is why I did it. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we feel so energized to, to explore her her case today, which, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, is very obscure. And the majority of people in the world have no idea who she is, and that's just fine. But there is a moment there of incredible power that I think continues to resonate and reverberate in some of our, our strategies today. Another question that arises in the film is that of the positive and negative sides of being publicly visible as a trans person. At its best, being visible has the power to assert one's genuine identity uh, and perhaps educate others. But uh, at its worst, it can bring about the kind of backlash that we see today, including violence. So being invisible is a different strategy to avoid that hatred and discrimination. I wonder how you think about this. You know, I feel very lucky that our project comes out on the tails of many other projects who have been asking this question about the double bind of visibility, like our friend Sam Fader's Disclosure as one example, where many makers and scholars are arguing for the reality that the underside of visibility is is vulnerability and is violence. And and this is my 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 chance to bring in the glory and genius that is Jules Gill Peterson into our conversation because I think what Jules offers us in Framing Agnes is a different way to consider the power of invisibility and the ways in which opacity or a lack of ability to know or a lack of ability to see becomes its own form of political power. And, you know, in a moment where we are enduring a, a near global backlash against the rights of, of trans and gender nonconforming subjects, we can see that visibility is not helping us through and is actually pressur pressurizing certain parts of our community. And so I'm really excited by what Jules brings to our film and the, the provocation that perhaps those who remain outside the logic of a kind of archival capture or off screen or away from our interpretation are the ones who quote, as she says, get the last laugh. And I think that having been on the circuit with her now for the better part of a year, people are challenged by that assertion and people want her to speak more to, to, to the potentials of this idea because it is something that I think we can't yet totally comprehend. I want to ask you what it's been like to be traveling with the film uh, this past year against a backdrop of tremendous uh, backlash and uh, laws being proposed and passed uh, against trans community, um, politicians uh, vilifying trans people for uh, their own gain. What did it mean to be out there with the film while while all this is happening? Yeah, it's a tough question to, to consider and there's many ways to answer it. The first 
thing that comes to mind in all honesty is the fact that any kind of circuit of publicity for a film puts a lot of pressure on its subjects and its makers to perform. And in the context of this current sociopolitical moment in North America, anyone who's showing up in the room with Framing Agnes immediately becomes someone who is asked to become a speaking subject on the current climate. And I balk at that. I, I feel myself um, closing and wanting to protect those who are on stage or those who are in the room with the film, because I recognize that I'm not really sure that, that that's what they signed up for when they decided to be in the film. And granted, some of the, the folks in our film are very happy to answer those questions. And you can find on the pages of the New York Times and The Guardian speaking to this very moment. But, you know, it's a moment where I don't think that our film does all things. Um, but I do hope that our film is a kind of intervention into the documentary landscape that has represented and produced certain kinds of stories about trans life. And that through the kind of formal moves that we make and through the kind of radical juxtaposition of these, of these time periods, that we are trying to jam the system and to cause a moment of reflection in our audiences to think like, how do we come to know about transness and what kinds of questions do we feel like we are able to ask and why do we feel like we can ask those questions of these people and and I think that your question is another great example of you know to whom do we approach for these answers to help us out of this moment and I don't want to take away the power of those within the film to do that because they do it so beautifully but again I think it's like a a, a very interesting example of something that we're trying to reckon with within the film itself so as I wind this up, um, I want to ask you how you think about channeling your own energy. You know, every day there's something in the news to uh, be uh, upset about just around this issue. <laughs> Never mind all the other things you could be upset about in the news. Um, uh, there's, you know, opportunities for activism or signing petitions or, you know, doing whatever one might do um, uh, in that spirit. And then there's the uh, things calling you as a creator. Um, uh, so I wonder how you, you know, think about where you put your energy. Mm -hmm. I'm a deeply collaborative maker and thinker and worker. And so I really try to return my energy to relationships, whether that's incubating new project ideas or even being in the world with Agnes as it continues to circulate. I find that I am most disoriented and most unhappy when I am alone <laughs> and um, forced into a kind of singular speaking subject position. And so part of that investment in the cohort uh, reveals itself in the film. And I also try to extend that off screen as well. And in those moments of incredible overwhelm, I do think that there's extraordinary potential in artistic production. And I don't mean to be trite when I say that. I think that art offers us a very particular set of tools for community collaboration. It offers us uh, an opportunity to circulate ideas to broader publics in much more efficient ways. And I think that those potentials are, for me, endless. And so I often return there to what can be the next thing or how can we create a new kind of cinematic container to hold these, these problems and, and ongoing considerations. Mm -hmm.
I want to thank Chase Joint for speaking with me. You can find his films Framing Agnes and No Ordinary Man on Video On Demand. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.